How do we start this again? I've genuinely forgotten. Um, um, well, I, I can't remember either. It's, it's normally you that does it. It, it. I think, yeah. Hang on, I'm going to bring up the, um, the, sound, the actual SoundCloud and just listen to the first one. Just yeah. very quickly so I can <laughs> nice. remember. This is the trouble with a big gap. I've just completely forgotten what we used to do. Oh, hang on, someone's knocking at the door. This is right. rather frustrating. Right, two seconds. Hello. You can't hear him because the headphones. But... Jordan's in the room now, and on the recording. Hello, Jordan. Definitely using this for the pre. The pre oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. That's that's definitely happening. Yeah, if you want pizza, hit me up. Jordan, what are your opinions on what are your opinions on Kurdistan? You don't know who that is. No, Kurdistan's not a person. Jordan is a place. I don't know what that is though. Right. Fantastic. Jordan is still wearing a dress, ladies and gentlemen. By the way. Oh, it's very fetching. He woke up like this, quite literally. Bye, Another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. Finally, it's the first one in some time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Apologies for that. Basically, what happened was David went ran away to Japan, and then everyone was very busy for a bit, and then I fell asleep. Yes. So, in summary, we're student very, life. Very sorry. Student life and all that. Yes. David, how was your your little trip to the far east? Oh, it's very nice. I I happened to get back the day before North Korea launched a missile over Japan, so that was good timing. It was very good timing. Uh, do, you, do you have any sense that perhaps Kim Jong-un knew you were there and was, was trying to take out such a, uh, a threat to his authoritarian <laughs> rule? Yeah, I'd like to think so. Well, but they were, just, they were rubbish at it. Yeah, well, of course they're rubbish at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, they're rubbish at everything, apart from, you know, torture. Yeah, yeah. got that one down. North Korea is bad. That's, that's my analysis. That's, I mean, it's, it's very solid analysis. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it is the same analysis that um, is shared by the current American president, so possibly some, some deeper complexities lie beneath. Yes, but, I uh, th- think the, the difference is that I think he's bad as well. Yes. Yeah. Although I get the feeling that there is some self-hating in Trump's psyche. Yes, deep, yes very deep actually. Down. Very deep I, down. I, I suspect. I mean, I'm increasingly coming to the opinion that the entire reason he ran for president in the first place was because of that um, roast that... Uh, Barack Obama gave him at yeah, the yeah. White House Correspondents' Dinner. <laughs> uh, you, you, have you seen that video? I have seen that video, yeah. Like, the look in his eyes is quite terrifying. It's like, just, that is a moment. It's like a Bond villain. He's like, you're yeah, yeah. destroyed. It's, it's his origin story as a supervillain. Yeah. Yeah. When they come to make the film about his life. <laughs> which there will probably the... will be one day, which is a really depressing thought. I mean, it depends who makes it. You know, I have no objection to there being a film about his life. There are plenty of films about Hitler that are quite good. It's just how it's done. And it's the fact that anyone has to care about Donald Trump is just an, mm. as as an idea. It's, it's, that's that's a that's a harbinger of the apocalypse. True. I was watching an interview between James O'Brien and I believe it was Robert Webb. This one uh, oh. he's been doing a few uh, unfiltered series. I think I mentioned them to you. Oh yeah. But um, Robert Webb points out something which I hadn't quite thought of, but it, that it's um. The Apprentice is the same the same TV program has given us both De- uh, Donald Trump and Katie Hopkins. Oh yeah, which is um, says <laughs> I've never thought about it like that before. But yes, as a as an institution, but remembering that Donald Trump is a reality TV star before anything else. Well, I mean, a real estate mogul before that even. But um, well, the reason he's known, yes, yeah. As, well, for anything other than just being a racist, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was slightly known for being a racist beforehand because of the uh, the Central Park Five, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. He de- demanded their heads even after the point where everyone had decided they probably didn't do it. Mm. No, no, Donald Trump still wants them. I don't know how they do it in New York. Lethally injected, presumably. Do they actually have death penalty in New York? I don't know. They don't have it in all the states. New York states. Seems like New York would be one of the ones that didn't. Yeah, but this was a while ago, I suppose. Oh, that's uh, right, it was yeah. published in two thousand and seven, so it would have done then. Ah. Um, but not anymore. Not anymore. Right. Shall we um, 
should we get on to the main stories for the week? Not that yes. I think we have much idea what they are. So, um, let's have a quick recap of the chaos that's been occurring since we have been away. Since it has yes. been such a long time. We've had the uh, been a lot party of conferences. Yes. Uh, and they were, they were interesting. Mm-hmm. I, 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 did you, I don't think you went to the Labour one, did you? I didn't know. No, I, I, I saw Corbyn's speech. Mm. It's surprisingly good, actually. Because I, I, I quite like Jeremy Corbyn, so I'm, I'm perhaps I'm biased, but compared to like what I was expecting and previous speeches that I've seen of his, I thought it was really good. I definitely, I've only, I haven't seen it in full. I've seen bits and pieces, but mm. I've definitely, it definitely looked better than the previous years, and it definitely um, looked better than Theresa May's. Oh, for goodness sake! Yeah. Well, I mean, <sighs> could anything have been worse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it was genuinely like something you'd see in a sitcom. Mm. I mean, the thick of the, you know, the thick of it would have done that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, they definitely absolutely would have. would have done that. I mean, Inuchi must be kicking himself that he didn't think of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just, it's, it's life imitating art, imitating just some kind of bizarre hellscape. Really. Yes. We are in the weirdest timeline at the moment. I mean, it was the, it was the explanation given for how, like, the fact that she was, she was coughing so that there was, they were all clapping to give her cover for that. Yes. Um, and then that it was supposedly the fact that they were applauding so much was apparently the reason why the um, letters dislodged. <laughs> because, because of course, the because last, last or in previous years at Tory conference, they've had sort of big letters sort of painted onto the backboard, but then you ended up with um, uh, Jeremy Hunt standing in front of the word country, yes. but O-B-O, yeah. which, of course, is, is not helpful. That's just comedy gold. It is. So I think for that reason, they went for the slightly smaller ones and they were magnetised, which is just asking for trouble. Oh, really. God. If if she just like got a cough and the the whole conference had rallied around her and applause and what have you, it could have been quite a touching moment. But because it was part of a series of really bizarre things that just happened, it it almost was quite touching to start with. But mm. it went on for so long. I mean, I have a cough at the moment, so I may well need some applause from your end to to cover that. Thank you very much. Thank you. That feels cheap now. That feels cheap. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, you can sympathise with that. But it, it just went on so long. It was one of those things. It's like you applaud the stoicism of carrying on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, you do have to just bow out and just say, "Look, lads, <laughs> I'll be back in half an hour." That's not what you want from a prime minister giving uh, their keynote speech to the party conference. Is you, you admire their stoicism in, mm. in struggling to the end of it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind I mean, of low bar for a good. It speech. really is, isn't it? <laughs> You can't imagine Churchill, mind you, Churchill probably would have just killed over drunk halfway through. So. Yeah, yes, very true. Man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> and mine, and mine. Although less and Only in that sense. Only in that sense. <laughs> yeah, I thought overall conference season went fairly well for the left. Yes. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a great, um, a great victory for, for the other lot. No. Was, there, was a, there was an odd triumphalism about the Labour conference mm-hmm. uh, in, in the kind of Again, I wasn't there, so this is this is from a slightly um, distant view. But but it, it th- there does seem to be a sense in which quite a lot of people will sort of think there's going to be this one more heave. Um, mm. We just have to keep doing the same thing a bit longer, and we'll be over the line. I don't know what people are expecting Jeremy Corbyn to be the next prime minister now, which is a and, new thing. And to be fair, he's probably more likely than any other person I can think of. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, bet- the betting would be in that direction. Yeah, I mean, since the um. Looking at the polls, because I'm obviously a massive nerd, so mm. I have a little Excel spreadsheet with all the polls in, because the Wikipedia, the Wikipedia spreadsheet and graph are not up to my standards. Um, so I have my own, uh, which you will find in our shared folder, David, if you ever feel like oh, well, I, I probably will, because I'm also a nerd. Yes. But in any case, I think there was, after the, um, the Conservative uh, and the Labour conferences, you can see somewhere around a, um, a two-point drop in support of the Conservatives over the yeah. next sort of couple of weeks. Interestingly, though, that started to recover. They've sort of regained about half of that support. And Labour stayed fairly flat. Ah, so they um, didn't really give them a s- bounce. No, there was a slight increase. Um, but, to be honest, it was only so small, it was probably just statistical noise. So... Yeah, yeah. Yes, when when, when they're paying that close in attention to polls, it's very easy to read too much into just mm. random fluctuations. Well, I mean, this, I, do, I do use a seven-point moving average, so yeah. it's, not, it's not like one poll's going to throw it all the way out, but even so. Mm. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so it, it did seem to... Disadvantage them slightly, but not not hugely. No, but the, the Conservatives are already in quite a weak position. So, True. Um, what they needed was a recovery, and they definitely didn't get that. No, but at the moment, on that seven point rolling average, Labour are two point one percent ahead, mm. which is enough of a swing, I think, to put them as the largest party, though not enough for a majority. No, 
Uh, it's very difficult for any party to get a majority at the moment, particularly oh, yes. because of Scotland. Yes, well, that that's really the thing, isn't it? Hmm. I think people also forget just how bad the 2015 result was for Labour. So oh, it's catastrophic. They have a huge amount of ground to make up before they can get anywhere near, near a majority again. They're on track, but it's... The 2017 result put them in a much better position. Yes, yes, they're now in a position where they probably could, without a, an unbelievable swing, like be able to form a government. Because I think they had their biggest swing ever, or maybe since 1945. I believe it's since 1945. Yes, um, and it still didn't give them a, a government. No. So imagine the kind of swing that they would have to have had from 2015 to put them in government now. Yes. Although that, that's also partially effect, affected by the fact that the Tories also had a pretty good swing towards them. Uh, to an extent, it was. I think it was less than half the size of the Labour one, though. Oh, well, yeah, 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 much less. But the Tories had, had a bit of a, a rise in poll numbers, mostly because of the collapse of UKIP. Oh, yeah, well, almost entirely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's where most of those votes came from. But Labour managed to say, to, once the election campaign took off, Labour were with their enormous poll gains that were happening extremely fast, that was coming from everyone. They were taking votes off the yes. Tories, UKIP, Lib Dems, I think the Greens and the SNP as well. Oh, I, I definitely think that if the election campaign had run for another week, with that level of coverage, we'd probably have a, a, a Labour largest party. Yeah, 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 certainly. And I can't see, I can't see this government lasting a full term. And it, they po- Potentially they could, because British politics is in such a state that perhaps staggering on in this wounded state for an extended period of time is sort of the, the best that British politics can muster at the moment. But it, you wouldn't normally expect a government like this, especially one that's in so many ways seeming so tired and running out of talent, to be able to to keep going for a normal length of term for a government. Um, and if there's another election campaign, then it will come back to the, with campaign-style coverage, Labour make great gains in this current political climate. So I, I could see Labour very easily... I, I could easily see Labour winning an election at the moment, by quite a margin as well, actually, if they have a full campaign. My, my only worry is, given that May hasn't gone yet, I think it's likely she'll cling on till after Brexit. Um, because I don't think any of the other big beasts in the Tory party want to be saddled with that. Um, so I don't think they'll That's move against very her good point. until she's... You know, until after the... Uh, whatever it is... Um, March 2019. That's quite a, that's quite a significantly bad thing as well because the Tories are going to make a mess of Brexit. Yeah. So then, then the thing is, well, do they then have the election pretty soon after that? In which case, I think they're probably doomed. But if they can struggle along till 2022, maybe they can. I don't know. I mean, my, you know, as you know, my my economic predictions for post Brexit are pretty dire. Mm. So that should work against them, but. Things are so volatile at the moment. I just, I'm lo- I'm loath I'm loath to get too hopeful. I think that's the problem. Hmm. It does seem like Labour would actually quite like to have a go at doing Brexit right, whereas the yeah. Conservatives, it feels like, oh, we've got to do this. We'll try and do it right, but we'd really rather not be doing this. Is the feeling that I get from this Conservative government? Because Labour have had a bit of time in opposition where they can think about what they want out of this, and sort of are the only people who seem like they might be able to deliver on some of the things that Brexit is supposed to be good for. Well, I mean, the only real advantage to Brexit is it does loosen some of the strictures around, you know, state aid to um, hmm. companies and things like that. Hmm. I mean, other countries in the EU managed to get around it. I mean, France just ignores most of the rules. Hmm. But, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, so there is, there is that end of things. I mean, I'd certainly be much happier for Labour to conduct Brexit than oh, yeah. the Tories to, although I'd prefer it if, you know, Everyone just sort of quietly dropped it. Mm. I still think that might happen. I think I still think there's a decent chance that this transitional arrangement, which is slowly taking shape, might just last indefinitely, or at least for a long time. I've come around a bit more to that view recently. I think Brexit might not happen actually, ultimately, because mm. it's because it's such a mess at the moment. No one really knows how any of this is going to work, and we're already like, how long have negotiations been going on now? Nearly a year. Um. Not, not quite a year. Over six months, think. though. Yeah, yeah. And, and, like, what has been achieved? Pretty much nothing. And they have to be done by... Less than 18 months' this time. time. This time next year. Yeah. Because you've got to have time to get it through the European Parliament, mm. um, through our Parliament, and then through the European Council, which, for many member states, requires them going back to their parliaments as well and mm. getting them to approve it. Um, and um, then we've got the negotiations for a trade deal. 
because this is just the divorce bill um, settlement that they're that they're um, uh, um, negotiating over at the moment. Yeah, nothing, nothing to do with having what the future relationship of the of Britain and the EU is going to be. We haven't even touched on that yet. No, at the no, moment, no. we're just negotiating how do we get out. Well, that's why we need the transitional arrangement because there's just not time at the moment. Yes, um, but yeah, as I say, it's how long that traditional that transitional period ends up being, hmm. and I think they might do a bit of a uh, a rolling rolling renewal of it for some time to come. That's a very good point. But it depends what the state of play is during the transition. Because mm. if we, because we will have left the EU, yeah. And the trend, the idea of the transition is that we stay part of the customs union and the common market and what have you. Yeah. So I, I do think that it's possible that I, I still think we're going to leave the EU. I doubt oh, they'll yeah. completely reverse on it. But you'll end up with a super, super soft Brexit by way of a transition, which never ends. Yeah. With a kind of like a, a cliff edge hard Brexit always just around the corner. Mm. That's going to be the real problem. Is we're going to have the worst of both worlds. We're yes. Have this a sort of permanent crisis arrangement. Yeah. The kind of soft Brexit that a lot of the pro-leavers don't want and will be massively annoyed by. Mm. But then with this constant threat of, well, if by some chance the transitional arrangement isn't renewed next year, suddenly we're, we've are we fallen off the cliff. Mm. If there's no other deal. If there's no other deal, yeah. Because what Labour wants to do is use the transition to try and I explicitly, the transitional period is supposed to be whilst we negotiate a membership of the single market so that we can stay in it. Yeah, um, but they want some changes on the rules for free movement because that's quite clearly part of the the public opinion on Brexit. If you, if you don't do something about immigration, but you leave the EU, you're sort of not really respecting the referendum result, and so you might as well stay in the EU. The question is, will the EU give us any of that? And the answer is, mm, they'd be very reluctant to. The idea that you can be in the single market but not have free movement is sort of anathema to the EU. It is, although I think there is there is possibly a deal to be had. I mean, I think. I mean, it is in the EEA treaties that you're allowed a certain amount of control over immigration. As in, it's, it's just already in the standard deal for any EEA member. Most EEA members, like Norway and uh, uh, Iceland, for example, don't use it. In fact, they have less... Norway um, is in Schengen. So it has less restricted immigration than Britain does. But technically they could, if they wanted to, leave Schengen, stay in the EEA, and then use the EEA rules to put controls on immigration. It's not much, but it is more control than in the EU. So that, plus some particular wrangling negotiations that you might be able to do within EU, which seems like they would be, they would have an easier time negotiating with Labour, you could probably get something approaching a certain amount of control over immigration that would be enough to make people happy with it, but still being in the single market. I, I can see a path, if Labour's negotiating it, towards getting a, a reasonable settlement there. But that's not going to happen if the Tories are in power. No, the thing is, it's massively in favour, it's massively in the interests of both the European Union and the United Kingdom to retain the economic partnership. Mm. I mean, if we pull out the EU, our economy will go into recession, right. but so will some EU member states. In my opinion, it's in our mutual interest for Britain to just stay a member of the EU. So. Oh, naturally, <laughs> yes, of course. But I don't think, unless unless um, Vince Cable is Prime Minister in a year, which, <laughs> to be honest, wouldn't surprise me that much at this point. Given but, the... Uh, the, the ups and downs of politics recently. It's, it's Donald Trump's the president. It's worth remembering that. It is. The idea that Vince Cable might be the prime minister is really not that strange compared to that. <laughs> did, you see, I say, did you see that little video from um, the Lib Dem party conference? Oh, no, I don't think oh, so. Oh, you must. It, uh, it's, it, it was on, um, it was playing on Have I Got News For You the other day, but it's, it's fantastic. He, he sort of puts his hat on Vince and then sort of winks at the camera mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing I'll, I'll find it for the show notes because people have to see it it is mandatory viewing it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen it's only about three seconds long so you have no excuse it's sort of knowing look yeah I'm going to be the yeah. Prime Minister wink ah <laughs> uh, Vince oh, I use a cable no not Sir Cable Sir Vince Sir Vince don't do, don't do Sir Cable it would be Lord Cable we haven't quite got there yet <laughs> Lord is Lord that cable. what it is Yes, yes it is. Oh, I've always yeah. I've always said it Sir last name and I've always thought it sounds wrong. Yeah, it does. Ah. <laughs> you say if they're a knight it's Sir first name and then if they're a lord it's Lord last name. Ah. Like Sir Alan but Lord Sugar. Right. Anyway, yes. This is this is a semantic cul de sac which is unbecoming of a left wing podcast. Right. Shall we turn our attention overseas? Yes. The cars. Okay. <laughs> There have been a couple of uh, rather important developments 
in two uh, would-be countries mm. who have declared independence from the state of which they are currently a part. Now, most people will have heard of Catalonia, yes, which, as you all should know, has uh, recently de- voted to declare its independence from Spain. We also have a very similar similar process has un- been undergone in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, yes, which has declared its independence from the central government of Iraq. So I wanted to turn perhaps to Catalonia first because it is yep. more well known. Um, I also know more about it. Yes, there's that as well. The, the current state of play is that the back in September, the Catalan parliament passed two laws, the referendum law and the transition law, which were to give the uh, Catalan government the, uh, the right and ability to hold a referendum on Catalan independence from Spain. That referendum was then declared illegal by the Spanish Constitutional Court because it's against the um, Constitution of 1978, which doesn't permit regions of Spain to secede. It was then opposed by the Spanish central government under Prime Minister Rajoy, and I've mangled that, I'm sure. Mm. Well, it's a J in Spain, so it's probably a J. Yeah, Rajoy, yes, indeed. And then, obviously, the vote went ahead. There was police repression. Uh, the Spanish police were sent in. Uh, the, the Catalan Mossos were also ordered to act, but in many cases refused or did you know the absolute minimum requirement. There was a great deal of, of civil mobilization on both sides. There have been big protests in Barcelona just recently against the independence movement. Hmm. Um, but the end result of the referendum, of course, was that there was a fairly weighty result for independence. And on the basis of that vote, Catalan Prime Minister had previously declared independence and suspended it. But on Friday, uh, the Catalan Parliament voted to unsuspend that declaration mm. and so Catalan has now unilaterally declared its independence and Spain have responded by suspending the statute of autonomy so now we're in this rather messy situation whereby Catalonian government says it's an independent country the Spanish government says you're now just a part of Spain you have no autonomy whatsoever and the European Commission is decidedly not getting involved mm. although they have um, agreed with the Spanish constitutional court that the referendum in the first place was illegal uh, but beyond that there's been very little action from the eu i think it's worth remembering that if something's legal or not that doesn't determine which side's right no of course not for example in um early 1940s europe the holocaust was legal and the french resistance was illegal i don't know what specifically your position on the independence argument is i suspect i can guess but maybe you'd like to lay that out so it's it's an odd one in that it doesn't cut Precisely across left-right divides. No. Um, there are right-wing people who support Catalan independence as a sort of anti-EU thing, and left-wing people that do so, and right and left-wing people who do the opposite, support Spanish Union. Um, I, I certainly think that the Spanish government has behaved unacceptably, particularly around the referendum itself. Hmm. They, they should have allowed there to be a referendum and to respect the results of it as well. I know it's against the Constitution, but that means the Constitution's wrong. And frankly, you know, there is no, like, when, when do we have the Scottish independence referendum in this country? I mean, there's no constitutional right for Scotland to secede from the Union, to, but the central government has the sovereignty and allowed that to occur, which mm. is, the Spanish could have done the same. Yes. So given that, we're a bit past the point of no return. If the Spanish government gets what it wants now, then that means that the violence that it's used has worked. I don't want that to be the outcome. So I think overall... I would probably support Catalan independence. And I certainly would support their right to declare it if they want to. I, I wouldn't push for it if, it if it wasn't being called for. But self-determination is the most important thing here. There is, there is an argument which I've seen made, um, which runs along the lines that one of the main drivers for the, the push of Catalonian independence is the fact that Catalan is one of the richest, I think, other than the Basque country, I think it's the richest region of Spain. Mm. Spain in inverted commas for both of those, and that they are upset at the revenue which is generated in Catalonia going to support other regions of Spain, largely Andalusia, which is, of course, much poorer, mm. uh, which is the southern region, yes. for those who are not up to date on their Spanish geography. Yes, so it's um, an interesting thing whereby that would be the sort of thing that would lead conservative parties, centre-right parties, to want independence. Yes. But it's also tied up with the Spanish Civil War, a while ago, and and the uh, dictatorship that they had in the Catalonia was treated extremely badly under Franco. I mean, the language was declared illegal. Yes, 
or not even to be a language. And the new Catalonia would be a republic, which is a much more left-right issue in Spain. The left in Spain is much more anti-monarchy than it is here, because they were a republic for a while. And they even have a different flag, and you always see it on uh, uh, protests and so forth. The, the, it's a very good flag. It is a very good flag. Actually. One of my favourite flags. Um, but the, the Catalan independence movement and the, the government in the Catalan parliament at the moment is a coalition of all different parties, which seem to me to span pretty much the usual spectrum of the parties of a European parliament. They go from mm. centre-right, centre-left, they have liberals in there, they have greens in there. Um, but there are also groups outside of that coalition who also have seats on the Catalan parliament and also support independence. And they tend to be quite radical left movements. But the, there is a history of Catalonian leftism being more anarchist than, uh, than other European radical left movements. Which again is a result of the, the Spanish Civil War and before that I think of the, the kind of the particular like concentration of, of industrialized industrialization in that region as compared to the rest of Spain. Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that only happened in the 30s, so that's within living memory, when yeah. uh, several million people in Catalonia lived in an anarchist society for a period of years. In the middle of a civil war, so it wasn't the most... And with the Soviets doing their best to help the fascists crush it out of existence. Yes, yes it was, it's one of the few cases where fascists, Stalinists, and liberal capitalists all united against a common enemy, which was the anarchists. And I think there is a strain of that still happening in the Catalonian independence movement. But there's also a much more centrist aspect to this as well, which includes some quite conservative people. I mean, my, my position is, is roughly the same as yours. I mean, certainly self-determination, I think, is important. I've seen some people argue that, actually, the Catalonian right to self-determination doesn't exist because they've been part of Spain for so long and, and this kind of thing. I don't... I don't they've been argument. part of Spain for a long time, but Spain, for a lot of that, Spain wasn't a democracy. No, and, well, for most of it. And they, they were only united, after all, by the Union of the Crowns with Isabella and, mm. and Ferdinand. Yes, and, and the, 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 the Spanish state especially the Spanish deep state, still has a lot of the old fascist regime in it, and including their conservative party. It's not like, for example, that was, that was always a worry with Podemos, um, which was never a case with Syriza, that when Syriza got into power, there was no worry that there was going to be a military coup or something against them, whereas that could very easily have happened if Podemos had won in the election. So when Syriza came to power in Greece, there was never a worry that there was going to be like a military coup or something, that the Greek deep state would move against them. Whereas that was a worry with Spain and Podemos. If Podemos had won the election, there very easily could have been the Spanish military, for example, trying to depose the government. They never had that step change. It was a more... The way they transitioned into being a democracy was perhaps smoother than you'd like it to be when you're transitioning out of fascism. I mean, it was really... It was the king, wasn't it? Yes. Who, who had been left all the power by Franco. Hmm. Magnanimously decided to return power to the people. So, the idea that there's some force that wants to... Um, like majorly change the structure of the Spanish state, i.e. to make part of the area that is now Spain governed by a completely different state, that seems to me to be, to at least an extent, um, uh, moving to correct that hangover in Spanish politics, especially if you're trying to make it a republic as well. I mean, on, on the specifics of the actual referendum, there are problems with low turnout. This is, I think, the crucial... From the from the argument of as to whether the referendum was legitimate, it's a nine, it was a, a, over a ninety percent vote for independence, but it was only a forty three percent turnout, because of largely I think the difficulty most people had in voting because of the police action against people trying to cast their vote. Well, that's sort of the point of the police action. They always knew that they would never be able to stop everyone from voting. All they needed to do was disrupt it enough to cast doubt on the referendum yeah. result. Yeah. So I, I think it is. I think it is legitimate that the the Catalan Parliament have gone ahead with their declaration of independence. Yes, and even if the turnout was higher, given the extent of the vote for independence in the people that did vote, that would still be a large... Um, you, you would have to have the people that that didn't vote but might have vote against independence so overwhelmingly that it would be very unlikely that if they were to hold a proper referendum it would be anything other than independence. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the next few days and weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, um, the Catalan president uh, will back not his name uh, Puigdemont, I think, is how, oh, yeah. maybe how that's pronounced, but who knows. Um, he has left the country, I believe. I think he's been offered asylum by the Belgians because Interesting. part of the Belgian uh, coalition government at the moment is the one of their Flemish nationalist parties, who obviously want um, ah. to Flanders to secede from Belgium. So 
that's interesting. They have sympathies with the Catalonians. But that is a far more fraught um, kind of on a left-right axis. That particular uh, independence movement. But in any case, is it, um, in which direction? Well, the the Flemish nationalists lean to the right, and do they right in in a way which the Catalonians have kind of a bit of both, but I think overall lean left. Right. Flanders is is obviously is, is sort of the more much richer, much richer part of Belgium. Actually, the the Walloons, the, the French speakers, are also want to succeed. It's quite it's it's, it's um there is it's, it's one of those things. It's it's almost at the point where yeah, it probably would be better if the two just went their separate ways. But um, since there's such large nationalist movements in both halves, it almost seems daft mm. not to. But anyway. But essentially, Belgium was carve a bit off of the Netherlands, mm. carve a bit off of France, make a new country so no one can control the whole Netherlands. Which is the Spanish fault again. It all comes back to that branch of the Habsburgs. But yes, so anyway, that, that particular minister, for those reasons, has offered Puigdemont asylum and any other members of the Catalan leadership who have been sort of charged, charged with sedition mm. under the, uh, by the Spanish courts, which carries up to a 30-year prison sentence. If right. I, um, I think... The, the SNP and Plaid Cymru have both come out saying they haven't in, they haven't rec- exactly officially recognised Catalonia, but they've like offered explicit support for them in some way. Uh, well, yeah, I mean Plaid Cymru aren't in government, but I suppose the SNP could probably offer asylum. Yeah, yeah, that's true actually. In Scotland, that would cause problems with the central British government who have supported Spain. But mm-hmm. Nicola Sturgeon's never shown. Much, yeah. much um, hesitance to annoy Theresa May, so I'm sure that she's probably up for it. If, if got to remember that she is Scottish. Should we turn then to Kurdistan? The other one, yes. The other one, yeah. I'm sure that's how they love to be thought of. So yeah, it's it's a kind of an interesting, a very interesting parallel. Yes. So the the referendum was held on the 25th of September, and 93% approximately in favour of independence. Hmm. Um, so the, 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 the referendum was sort of set up to be non-binding, but since then, the Kurdistan regional government have kind of, how would you put it, acted as if it has been de facto a binding referendum. Mm. Well, because they are also right in between the, um, uh, they're right next to the Syrian civil war. Yes. Previously, ISIS had been very powerful in northern Iraq as well. Yes. Well, this is the thing. So, so you have, you've had calls for um, Kurdish independence for a long time. They're the largest national group in the world without a state of their own. Mm. Um, they spread over Syrac, Syria, Iraq, uh, Turkey and Iran primarily. They have been kind of leading the fight really against Daesh in, in northern northern Iraq and in in northern Syria as well, the, the Syrian Kurds. So yes. the, the Peshmerga forces, which is their kind of um, regional army, are, you know, battle-hardened veterans, which is you know, may cause some problems for the Iraqi government. Because essentially, the Iraqi government has not recognised the... The new Kurdish state. The new Kurdish state, yes. Um, so they've they've sent troops to the border crossings um, to secure those. They've stopped all international fights um, over the region, these kinds of things. And they, crucially, the, the Kurdish claim extends outside the official Kurdistan region. Yes. That's one of the key problems. So... So the area which is held to be part of historical Kurdistan includes territory which is not under the Kurdistan government's control. Including primarily the city of Kirkuk, I think it's called? Kirkuk, yes. So that's that's one of the big problems because that's it's a very, very um, important city economically because it's very rich in oil yes, and oil production facilities. And so control of that city is really vital to an independent Kurdistan being economically viable. And the, mm. the Peshmerga had been kind of crucial in liberating it from... Uh, Daesh, who had previously held it, but now uh, the Iraqis have moved in and, yes. uh, and recaptured it from the Kurds, which has um, begun a, a military conflict along the new border. Um, and obviously the Iraqi army is much larger, but the Peshmerga are, I think most people would agree, much better mm. at, uh, trained and more experienced. Well, the trouble is, for America, is that these are both American allies in the the, the conflict in the region. So they're put in quite a difficult position for, for what position to take. But yeah, so, so the, the problem in the international kind of in the, uh, sense within the region is that the Turks are worried because the areas of Turkish Kurdistan that border Iraqi Kurdistan now the independent. A very large part of Kurdistan is in Turkey. Yes, yes. I think possibly the majority or at least the plurality of the population. Certainly the plurality, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and those those areas of, of Kurdistan have previously been in a kind of a 
uh, what the Turkish government would characterise as a, as a terrorist campaign against the mm. Turkish state. There's a very interesting faction to that that's considered a terrorist organisation by the Turkish government called the Kurdistan Workers' Party, Yeah, who are anarchists and are very much involved in the Syrian civil war as well. Syrian Kurdistan, insofar as some of it's independent, quite a lot of it is currently anarchist-controlled. Whereas the Iraqi areas are less so. No, that's that's more of a parliamentary system. Because they have a, they have had a semi-autonomous parliament for a while. It's one of the better things to come out of the Iraq war is that the Kurds got more independence. Mm-hmm. But you have... Um... So you have those regional tensions between between the Syrian Kurds and the Iraqi Kurds who have very different systems of government, very different political um, belief, but obviously have a common national cause and, and feel very keenly that they are the same people. Mm. Um, you have the, the Turkish Kurds who have previously been uh, led, led by the Kurdistan Workers' Party, but also other political groups, mm. um, pushing for independence both with um, uh, parliamentary means but also through force. And the whole region is, of course, a bit of a powder keg at the best of times, and these aren't the best of times. Yes. So so this shows that... Um, I, I think this is a theme that we're going to see more of in the region, which is that now that Daesh are falling back, the coalitions, of the, the unlikely friends who were finding themselves on the same side against ISIS, their underlying tensions will start to come out more. So the, the reason why the Kurds and the Iraqi government had managed to maintain this kind of uneasy peace for so long is because they were both busy fighting ISIS. Now that that threat's waning, they're starting to go at each other. Uh, it would be interesting to see if, for example, America has been fighting alongside Russia quite a lot in Syria. But to an extent, it was always very complicated because their attitudes towards the regime was very different. But they were both fighting ISIS. That's likely to become more tense now that they don't have that common enemy. Well, now that common enemy is being pushed back. Yes. Yeah, it, oh, of course, ISIS is still there. And it's very much a real thing. It's weaker than it was by a long way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's lost cities like Mosul and Kirkuk, which mm. are kind of key to its economy. As you say, the, the 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 real. I think one of the one of the the real issues is is the kind of the Iranian, Syrian, Iraqi government axis. May now be joined by the Turks, who don't get on with Iran, Syria, Iraq necessarily, mm. but they have a common interest in preventing um, Kurdish independence. Yes. Because they are worried that it will spread to to the territory they control, and that is such a significant part of Turkey territorially and population wise, mm. it would be quite a blow to them um, economically to lose it, and also a real blow to Erdogan's personal prestige. Yes. Given his obsession with appearing um, like this kind of authoritarian, uh, semi-dictatorial, well, moving into properly dictatorial, really at this point, um, kind of a Putin-esque figure, mm. it would really damage his image within the country and also wider in his relations with people like Putin and Trump, who, both of whom he has sort of been reasonably friendly towards, given... He appears to be at least, in to an extent, in that mould of politician. Yes, and I don't think he could take a blow of that nature. So, I think... No, and so he's back into a corner. He would be... But, um, uh, yeah, but he would be willing to use, I think, force yes. to to make sure... I mean, he there are troops deployed in Turkish Kurdistan, mm-hmm. in any case. From his perspective, he wouldn't really have much other options. No. No, which is a real worry. I mean, the, the Kurdistan independence issue to me is is more clear cut even than the Catalonian. I think it's pretty obvious, yeah, given yeah. The, the the repression which the Kurds have faced over the decades, and really, um, ultimately, it's ours and the French's fault with the way that oh, we carved course, up yeah. the Sykes Pico. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Iraq and Syria aren't really countries; they're loose agglomerations of groups. Mm. The borders just cut across national and tribal lines with no and religious lines as well, with no real kind of consideration for the people actually living there. That was always the problem with um, Iraq. That's partly why ISIS came about in the first place, is that the Sunnis in Iraq were being hard done by by the new Shia government that had come about after the war. Yeah. Um, back when they were still ISI, they didn't add the extra S for Syria. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of where ISIS came from. Another situation which will play itself out in the coming weeks, I mean, it is to be hoped that the, the Kurds can retain their independence. It is... The, the Kirkuk issue is a bit more fraught because there's quite a large Arabic population there as well as Kurdic. Yes. Um, it's historically considered to be part of Kurdistan, but it isn't terribly Kurdish at the moment. But it is rather vital economically to the success of any... Mm. Yes, it's a big royalty. Kurdish thing. So, yeah. It is to be hoped it doesn't escalate into a, a full war, but... Yes. Iraq does um, rather a well-known line in civil wars. Yeah. They don't tend to end well. No. Or end, really, at all.
On that slightly somber note, shall we turn our attention back to home shores? Yes. Uh, because the, the, I think the sort of the last thing we really want to talk about this week is the recent um, el- election for the leadership of everyone's favourite right-wing nationalist organisation, the United Kingdom Independence Party. Oh yes. Yes. Oh yes. So they, are, they are they are Sanfrage, as indeed his French name would require it be put. Sans forage. Um, sans forage, yes. Sans forage. They have lost... I mean, what, what was her name? I can't even remember her name. Diane... Uh, Diane James. She stepped down after 17 days. They then had Paul Nuttall for a bit, and now Paul Nuttall's out. Um, so they're, they're turning over the leaders fairly uh, fairly rapid clip. Even the Liberal Democrats are probably looking on with a bit of... a bit of disdain at this point, <laughs> which is saying something. Yeah. yeah, you know you're in trouble when the Lib Dems are looking down on you. You do, you do, you do. So the new leader... Uh, elected on the 29th of September is a chap called Henry Bolton. Yeah, I could not remember his name. It's understandable because he's a bit of a non-entity. In terms of his qualifications, um, he's actually probably one of the better qualified people in the party. His ex-army, which for UKIP is pretty good, I suppose, Mm. was a police officer. Uh, He worked in, I think it was um, Afghanistan. Yeah, he uh, worked for the Foreign Office and he was seconded to Afghanistan and he worked on border management strategies. Mm. So he's, um, you can understand why UKIP would go for him, I think. He's got the military and the police experience, which would appeal, I think, to the kind of conservative mindset. He's also, you know, given that he's worked in the Foreign Office for a number of years, he's obviously no idiot, mm. which um, always a plus. improvement on the previous, I think. So Far-right parties always struggle with that. They do, they do. It's, it's, um, I'm not, not sure why that, that is, but they do seem to attract some... So they've they've got a new leader. They've changed the logo. They've got a, a rather rather swish purple lion to replace the rather dated looking pound. Do you know? I did not know they changed their logo either. Yeah, it certainly works as a rebrand, doesn't it? It's not massively broken <laughs> public conscience, but then I don't think you're the key demographic. Though, That's true. Honest. That is true. <laughs> Unreconstructed leftists are not necessarily fertile hunting ground for incorrigibly unreconstructed. Incorrigibly unreconstructed, yes, indeed. So, yeah, new leader, new logo, brand spanking new. Um, Look at all the good it's done them. Well, we can return to uh, my uh, polling and reveal that since Mr. Bolton was elected, the moving average has risen for UKIP by a total of... A grand total. A grand total of (laughs) 0.2%. So a bounding resurgence there. Um, really quite something. Obviously, Henry Bolton has energised the party no end. Um, we haven't just come here to mock, although primarily, I think, if that's on the table. You've got to remember that right-wing parties basically don't have any activists, and they never do. Because no one wants to put the hours in. Well, their advantage is that they have lots of money. I'm not going to lie to you, uh, David, I'm afraid that I think I think we we both have it in common that both of our hometowns are very very pro UK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> are, are you from Thanet? Are you from? Uh, no, uh, Clacton. Clacton, that's the right. one that had yes the MP Master Carswell. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Here we are. Um, UKIP's got about thirty-two thousand members and declining, <coughs> uh, whereas Labour has got five hundred and seventy thousand members and rising. I think and rising. Yes. As well, I'm an, I'm I am I'm newly added to that total, David. Isn't yes, I? I finally taken the plunge and joined you. Indeed, in, in good to have you on board. Leftist leftistness. Yes, and our hard work. and our being members of the primary centre left party in yeah. in in a northwest European <laughs> liberal capitalist democracy. Super left wing. You've got to start somewhere. David. <laughs> you have got to start somewhere. Yes, you've got to start somewhere. Well, you, you can't go from a standing start to bringing out the guillotine. No, it's, it's, there's got to be. No, you got to work up to the guillotine. You, you have, you have. The deputy chairman of the uh, of UKIP is interestingly the Earl of Dartmouth. So you know, real insurgency there. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, one of the deputy chair people, I should say, the other deputy chairperson. Yes. Suzanne Evans. But th- th- this is my point: is that I can't um, stand Suzanne Evans. That, while you might think that it's possible to have a grassroots movement for all manner of things, it tends to be that only really left-wing causes can ever do a proper grassroots movement. Yeah. There are a few exceptions, but broadly speaking, you can't really do a bottom-up right-wing thing. 
There's always in some sense, like every fascist dictatorship was always supported by the existing elites. Yeah, well, they didn't get into power until they were. Mm -hmm. They started being sort of based in like the lower middle class, and then they get taken over by the elites when they reckon that actually we'd rather have them than the socialists. Mm. The the idea that there is this thing that's anti-establishment right wingness. There are people who try to do it, but it's it's there's never any there there. In the same way that there is for left wing movements. Sometimes left wing movements, without support from the elites, do succeed because it's sort of the only thing which ever manages to escape the reproduction of essentially the same system, in my opinion. Anyway, the reason we wanted to talk about this particular election is not just to take the piss out of Henry Bolton, although, you know, I've enjoyed it. Hmm. But it, the more, crucially, I think, for politics going, I hate that phrase, going forward. But going forward. Coming up now um, is the person he stood against. So the... Yes. Um, there was a, a pretty broad field initially in the UK election, but the final um, kind of contest came down to really a two-horse race. In essence. Between Henry Bolton and Anne-Marie Waters. Now, Anne-Marie Waters is Irish. She's very, very, very far right. Yes. She's to the point where people like Farage were saying that if she wins, then the party's finished. And he's not exactly known as a bastion of liberalism. No, no. Um, No, this was genuine far-right stuff. UKIP has never properly been the same as other European far-right parties. But under her leadership, it would very much have been more in the mould of other European far-right parties. Yeah, It tends to attract that voting base since the collapse of the BNP. Certainly, yeah. The actual membership tend to be kind of furthest end of the Tories going on, you know, slightly to the left of fascism. Hmm. But I think if if Anne-Marie Waters had won, we would be seeing the emergence of of a new properly fascist party. And indeed, having lost the election, she set up her own party called For Britain, which... (laughs) The logo of which is a trident, which is half purple and half red. So I'm just going to look at that. It's quite good. It's not quite, you know, red and black, um, which, as we know, is the best colour scheme for all anarchist and fascist movements. Um, for some reason, they like the same colours for the general electors. But it's it's. I see. Yes. It, uh, so she's um, she set this up. She's affiliated, I think, with uh, Tommy Robinson. Um, Yes. A.K.A. Stephen Yellenon, who was the former uh, leader of the English Defence League. Um, there's a few other people involved within the kind of general British far right scene. There's a good article posted on the Hope Not Hate website recently, kind of detailing in more detail um, who she is and, and who the other members of, of her new organisation are. So mm. I shall link to that in the show notes because it can probably do a better job than I can. But yeah, I really just wanted to bring this up because. Um, the fact that she was able to get so far in the internal leadership battle, frankly, is quite worrying. She is avowedly anti-Islam, pretty straight up and down racist, to the point where Farage has called her a Nazi, which is not a term he throws around very often. So I think we can be fairly pleased that she didn't win, but I think it's also worrying that she was able to get as far as she did. Yes. Uh, I think to an extent, it's just because... UKIP became a thing and then collapsed. And so there was this shell of a party that was recently relevant, but which had fallen apart enough that it was small enough that relatively fringe groups could have a shot at taking it over. So there was a sort of um, uh, a perfect storm situation whereby groups that usually don't get a word in edgeways had a platform which was to an extent significant, but which they could also have a shot at controlling. And I don't know that that will come back. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, she, she, the actual turnout was pretty low in the election, so she actually only received 2,755 votes. Hmm. So we're not talking about a huge caucus, but still. No. And, and we can't know what would have happened to UKIP if she'd won. It's entirely possible that the voters who have been clinging on to UKIP would turn away. Because UKIP has always been quite focused around the personality of Nigel Farage. If he really doesn't like her and comes out very explicitly against her, then sort of hardcore, old-fashioned UKIP people who've been there for ages, I could see them moving away. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. But yeah, something to keep an eye on, I think. Certainly, yeah. I don't I don't suspect Fort Britain will get anywhere electorally. Oh, no, so no, they never do. The, the BNP having collapsed and Britain first being on the wane, it's possible they'll become sort of the new rallying banner for the... Kind of the, the, the fascist street movements, hmm. um, which have taken a bit of a hammering since, really, since the EDL went down in flames. Yes, 
to my eternal eternal joy. This is the thing that those groups, those sorts of groups, never end up running away with themselves with their own momentum, like leftist groups sometimes can. <laughs> momentum, very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only reason why far right groups like that ever get beyond one percent in the polls and no influence is if they start to get the support of elites somehow. Yes, you're quite right. You are quite right, and I don't think the early Dartmouth is particularly likely to no. throw waters into into the new group. I will link to i would have linked to their for britain manifesto in the show notes but unfortunately it goes to a dead page oh <laughs> so i shall not do that yes i think we're quite safe from this party oh what is the title um, you've been listening to revolutionary dispatches oh yeah thank you yeah. comrades yeah for your time okay. and attention indeed this could probably go at the end in a bit in the resolution <laughs> indeed right let's go You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Viva la Revolution. We intend to be back next week, David. Yeah, I think so. We might as well. Same time, same place. Same time, same place. I'll try and be awake. You'll try and not be in Japan. It will be <laughs> I will try. Bloody it's very difficult. You do You do seem to just get whisked away to these places. Yes, yeah. You had about, what, three days notice? Yeah, yeah. And then, you, and then you're in Japan. Yep. How does that even, how does that work? It was, it was slightly bizarre to live through it. I need to I need to plan, like, a trip to Sainsbury's a week in advance. <laughs> well, it's, it was mostly someone else had planned it, mostly. And... And so they then said, do you want to come? I was like, oh, okay. (laughs)